I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co, I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. If you've enjoyed listening to our live episodes with Levi Roots and Thomasina Myers, then what are you waiting for? Tickets are now on sale for our podcast live event in Manchester on the 17th of July. And in the coming weeks, I'll be releasing tickets to our events in Birmingham, Newcastle and Edinburgh. Each episode will take place in a very special venue with highly inspirational guests, including a speech from me and a chance to ask questions too. The evening will include wonderful entertainment, magical Holly & Co details, a fantastic opportunity to shop small business, drink a delicious tipple or two, mingle with like-minded people, make new friends and I will ensure you'll be thoroughly and utterly inspired. You see, I believe that one conversation has the ability to change the course of your life forever and I want it to be mine. So don't delay, get your tickets to Conversations of Inspiration, the podcast live in partnership with NatWest. We'll only be recording four more live podcasts this year, so make sure you don't miss out. Head to holly.co to get your ticket today. This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Petra Barron, founder of Curb. Petra began her small business journey from an ice cream van, selling her homemade chocolate at markets and festivals, where she discovered her passion for independent vendors and the small business community. This passion began to take over her life and so she decided to start her new business, bringing together the most exciting street food talent on the streets of London and so Curb was born. Her first site for her street food market was in King's Cross back in 2012 and since then Curb has grown to five sites across London with over 90 traders serving up a whopping 10,000 dishes a week. Launching her incubator programme, her business also helps to support and progress the business journeys of these food entrepreneurs who are driving change across the city's food landscape. With the goal to become part of the fabric of London, this was a podcast designed for those who need to see how big things can become from the smallest of beginnings, even out the front of an ice cream van. Truly inspirational and humbling. Hi Petra, so lovely to finally meet you here at your brand new Seven Dials location, set to open soon. Your name has been on our lips for a while now at Holly & Co, as we all love the business you've created. I get very excited when I see your 
giant green curb letters when I pop into London and have been lucky enough to sample your delicious small business delights being served up by all those incredible street food vendors. It's actually where we came first across Vicky's Donuts and now she's gone on to this stratospheric success and we're lucky enough to have had her speak at our Congregation of Inspiration last September. But I know that you almost discovered her. You're an incredible woman behind Curb and it's such a powerful platform that supports independence. So thank you so much for being on my cod podcast. On my cod past. I mean, maybe some food has got into my mind. Thank you for being on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. What a lovely intro. I'm quite excited to hear about it. Fantastic. Well, enough of CODs um, for now. I'd love to start with your story, your journey leading you up to launching your business. I understand you've always had this passion for food ever since you were a little girl. Yeah, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I was just raised around it. Like, literally, I grew up in a garden. Like, we would pull the food out of the ground, and we would... My dad was constantly pulling the car over to pick up roadkill, and we'd all be, like, in the back going, oh, no! And he'd kind of launch some, like, (laughs) hare or pheasant or something, kind of checking if it was good for us, our dinner or not, or for, like, he'd hang it up, maybe, if it needed a bit of um, de-stressing for a few days. And, And there was a lot of... It was just quite... It was, like, food out of the ground, food from the road, and then bargain bin in the co-op. But it was just what we did with the food and my dad was an incredible cook and he grew up with a mum as an incredible cook and all his siblings are incredible cooks and you know very ration book kind of mentality as dictated by my grandmother and it was all quite kind of like bracing as a child but it was just so natural like all anyone talked about was food and or cooked and got ready for dinner and then had dinner and then talked about what we were going to eat the next day and it was just very natural so I didn't I didn't even really feel like I was someone that was obsessed with food it took me a while before I even realized oh food is a thing for me it was just what Mm. was always there yeah I mean one of my biggest memories of childhood is um, my dad would make brawn in America they call it head cheese and um, it's God, basically, it's a jelly made out of all of the kind of like offcuts and offal and frayed beige kind of like bits of meat and head and shin and knuckle and everything like that. And you, you cook it up and obviously all the gelatin would come off the bones and it would turn into a jelly. And my dad would put it in like a really beautiful jelly mold and it would come this kind of glistening beige jelly and I'd be cut off this big quivering slice (laughs) it would be shoved towards me and I'd be horrified and I'd be told shut up and eat it it's really good for you and it's just kind of like oh no I think I might be horrified today (laughs) if that was put to me (laughs) yeah but it's funny like someone in I was in uh, America the other day and and this guy came up to me with head cheese um, in a little container like this old dude who sold it made it and sold it and he handed me some on a toothpick and it's like I have to do it I have to eat it because it's like homage homage to my dad's every time someone hands me some sort of questionable looking bit of meat because that's that was my dad's thing that was your dad's yeah and what were you like at school what was your passions I was into drama and I was into art and I was into I was into sprinting and I was into my friends and just kind of trying to get away with stuff a lot of the time and bunk off and just enjoying myself. I, I love school, actually. I mean, I didn't kind of like jump out of bed every morning, and go, oh, what wicked, I'm going to school. But I, 
I liked it. It was sociable. It was interesting. I was, you know, exposed to a lot of different kinds of people at school, and I, I thrive on that. I didn't have a problem at school. I was kind of naturally academic. But I was, yeah, I got bored. I got bored, so I'd sort of mess around a bit. You were ready to get out into the world? Yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling. And then you went travelling, where you were cleaning, um, so you were cleaning super yachts, which is not a bad place to probably clean, around Europe. And it was there that you had this light bulb moment. Could you tell me about that story? So I, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, yeah. I, I did all, everything I was supposed to do. I went to university, finished university, got out of university feeling like I'd been spat out into the world and hadn't been prepared at all for what was to happen and felt cheated. Felt like, hang on a minute, they've been telling me all my life that if you do this, then this will happen. If what you did this, you end up studying? American studies. Uh-huh. Um, everyone's like, what is that? <laughs> is that a thing? Um, no, it was great. And... Um, yeah, and then you kind of finish university and, and you're like, hang on a minute, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. This is, this is a con. And so I, I was in this position of coming to London after finishing uni and, and thinking, oh, well, I better get, try and get a good job for a year, which I, I got a really interesting job for a year um, working with a casting director. But I was just desperate to get out there in the world and I knew that there was a thing called crewing on super yachts because my uncle's girlfriend in the 80s used to work on them and she used to come back and regale me with stories about you know drinking champagne out of her stiletto and dancing on tables and being in Saint-Tropez and St. Bart's and everything and I remember thinking oh my god I want a bit of that Um, and and I still wanted to do that when I was you know 22 23 and and so I kind of did my year and I still felt like no I really need to just get out of here and get out into the playground of life i.e. the world and got a one-way ticket to Antibes in the south of France and started working on these super yachts pouring wine making cocktails setting the table seven star service making beds you know like all sort of like yep. Swiss finishing school stuff but also just a hell of a lot of cleaning and I'd been doing this for a few years and I'd just been working on a boat in Ancona in Italy for about two weeks cleaning with q-tips and toothpicks getting this boat ready for the owners to come on board and I had I you know there weren't even podcasts in those days I couldn't even listen to a podcast I I probably had some sort of Italian radio station on or something and I was going insane and at the same time I'm like I can't keep on doing this I was about 27 28 and I was thinking I cannot be sleeping in a bunk bed when I'm 30 so that was like my that big kind of thing. milestone that cannot happen and so there I am in Ancona after another day of cleaning with Q-tips and toothpicks. And I'm sitting there in this flat that they'd rented for me just thinking, oh my God, like I literally don't know what to do with my life. And I asked the universe for a sign and I, I said, okay, I'm going to turn on the telly. And when the, the first channel that comes on when I turn on the telly is going to be a sign I turn on the telly and the first thing that comes up is a Catholic um, televised service. And I was like, right, that means... I'm going to be a nun? (laughs) That means... No, that didn't occur to me. No. That means I'm going to be... uh, I've got to do something I really have faith in. I truly believe in. It's obviously not this. So the next channel I come to is going to be the thing that that is. And so the next channel was um, a cooking show. 
And it all sounds really obvious, but it was like, oh my God, of course it's food, it's cooking. All I really think about is food. I've been hanging all of my best friends on every boat I've ever worked on. I've been the chefs of the boats. And all I ever want to do when I'm ashore is go and track down the food and see what's going on and what's cooking and everything. And it was just this incredible moment of, oh, wow, I think I know what I'm going to do next. And it, it, it was completely mm. kind of um, absolute. What a moment that must have been. It's so interesting how we get these light bulb moments of illumination. It can be when we're, as you said, at our lowest or fed up in a job that we're doing at that point in time. And it pushes us to question that job, question our lives. And I had a similar experience um, where my father said to me one day, um, if today was the last day of your life, would you want to... To do what you're about to do today and it just really crystallizes everything if we've got 29,000 days on this planet and we spend so much of our time working we have to be passionate about it and I think what's so interesting from interviewing food businesses and chefs is that light bulb moment doesn't really necessarily come easily as you said it's a fundamental way of life in eating so you don't think too much of a career option or a business option or is what hasn't been done but I as you know people listening know I always encourage everyone to write that passion list and if food is right up there and one of the first things that you're writing down, chances are you should be in that industry. You loved baking, chocolate, and you went on to start your own food business from an ice cream van named Jimmy. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear that story and what led you to actually buying Jimmy. So, I... <laughs> Armed with the understanding that I was now getting into the food business, I left Italy and returned to England. And I, I actually um, worked for one of your guests that you've had on this podcast, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones. He was my first food job. I got back to London going, right, I want to get into food. What does that even mean? Does that mean cooking? Does it mean PR? Does it mean food writing? And I, you know, I didn't really know, so I was just trying things out. So I went and worked for him. That didn't work out. And actually... I, I then had another epiphany because I was feeling pretty low because I, I, I was like, oh, my God, I've come back to London. I'd been back for about five or six months, and I, I, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is, you know, where I need to be. I, I want to be in food, but I don't know exactly what to do. And I was um, at my cousin's house for dinner one night, and she lived on Portobello Road at the time, and she was saying, telling me about Portobello Market, and she was like, oh, my God, the, the traders on that market are cleaning up. I've stood and counted how many people the German sausage guy sells <laughs> in 10 minutes, and it's obscene, and, you know, we should be doing a stall on that thing. And she said, you know what Portobello Market doesn't have? A chocolate stall. And I literally went, oh, my God, oh, my God. That's it, chocolate, chocolate, of course, it's chocolate. It's always been chocolate. I've been making chocolate stuff since I was a kid. This, this is incredible. And everywhere I'd gone on my travels, I was always tracking down the chocolate. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to do that. I remember walking home that night, risen. And I had this feeling that I always talk to people about ever since when they're coming to me with their ideas. It's like, have you got that feeling, though? Have you got that like, burning feeling in your stomach that's going to mean that you do it? No matter what crap comes your way, you're going to do it because you have to do it because this is like your calling. And I had that. 
and I put my name down dutifully on the list to trade on Portobello Market. I was 13th on the list. And then I started being told someone's got to die before you get moved up that list. And so then I segued and went, right, I'm going to get a van. And I started trawling eBay, found this van up in Inverness, tracked someone down that someone I knew who knew someone else would go and look at the van for me she knew nothing about vehicles I just needed to kind of like be doing what I thought was my due diligence <laughs> I remember this woman that I'd never met before calling me from within this van in Inverness going yeah it looks pretty good I mean you know nice high wheel. <laughs> four wheels and I was like oh screw it I'm gonna do it because that that was a thing it's like right I want to mm. start a business but I need to kind of commit myself to it in order that I yes. actually do it. Because I think there's a lot of people who go, oh, I want to start a business, and they spend months and years... Procrastinating. Yeah, doubting, thinking about it, talking about trying it. Trying to get it perfect. Yeah. yeah. And through, like, making that financial commitment of buying this £3,500 uh, van... You were in. Yeah, I was in, and it was terrifying. Like, once I... Got, I remember driving into London and, like, my family coming to meet me and them all looking at it a bit sort of aghast, like, oh, my God, what have you done? They were excited, but it was a bit like, woo, okay. And then I had to go about the task of turning this van into my idea of this kind of, like, wonderful chocolate emporium on wheels. And it was really stressful. Like, to this day, it's probably the most stressful thing I've ever done. It really is, isn't it? I mean, when, when people talk about starting Northern High Street or even Holly & Co, there is nothing like that stress. But it's almost that the pain, once you're on the other side of that initial thing, you are all the better for it, you know, it's, isn't it? You are. But tell me about those early painful days. Just horrendous. Just like, I remember driving this van around. It's got a big old 6 kVA generator on the back of it, like noisily blaring through the kind of like genteel streets of Kensington, trying to like fly pitch outside Kensington Gardens and being seen off by the cops and then being like, we're going to impound your vehicle if you don't move. You're not, there's no, no ice cream vans allowed in the Royal Borough kind of thing. And, and you're like driving around trying to sort of like half-heartedly sell ice cream, but you, you've got nowhere to go. Your friends are all kind of trying to help you and everything, but it's all, you're just kind of like going on a wing and a prayer. And then I, it was kind of the combination of the, realizing the idea and then the logistics of mm-hmm. making that happen. And I used to just drive around like with my heart in my mouth going, oh, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. I like, genuinely hating a lot of it, mm-hmm. but like having to do it, like I've started now, I have to continue. And just your, your your dream seems so far away even because the reality is now happening and it's like on oh, this is well the reality really becomes very thinking. doesn't it it becomes very operational very really here operational. and now it's all about the generator for you you know not working or not finding a parking space so forget the visualization of your dream it's actually today or other people will experience paying the rent or having to be able to afford staff you know that one member of staff you've got out the front or and you can't do that so you can't grow the business because you just literally can't do what you need to do today it's very difficult to try and operate both of those sides of the business yeah it really is and you have to really find some grit and I remember thinking, my God, I'm, I'm sure loads of people say this, my God, there's no way in hell I would have started this if I'd have known how Naivety. It it's a beautiful thing, naivety, yeah. isn't it? I used to wake up in the middle of the night. I remember going to stay with a friend of mine because I was so stressed out because I just felt safer by her house. And just waking up in the middle of the night every night just in a panic. And I'm thinking, now, what was I so scared about? But I, it was just, te- yeah. it's like... Cr- 
creating something completely new and giving it to the world and hoping that the world is going to accept it. And, you know, my mm. first pitch was on Portobello Road, but up at the dodgy end under the Westway, where I'd have to kind of like reverse past all this kind of like tat. And then I'd park up, be there from six in the morning to six in the evening. And all anyone would ask me all day was, do you sell cups of tea and have you got any hot dogs? And... <laughs> <laughs> making cups of tea with a water boiler and um I used to make like 60 quid a day you're not getting my dream everyone no it was awful and I was like is this just a terrible idea because everyone would be going oh my god this is such this was the thing that saved me was everyone going good for you amazing you started a business and it was like I'd entered into a realm that I hadn't known about before which was being somebody who starts something and people respecting that and being mm. interested in that yeah. and wanting to help you. But then on the other side, it's like, people have still got to buy this stuff. And so it was a bit of a disaster. I did it for about six weeks. And then I finally got a, my first big break trading at Brick Lane. And, you know, my first day I took like 450 quid. And I was like, oh my God, I'm quids in. I'm this rolling it. in it. <laughs> the big time. This and is like the super yacht moment Yeah, again. and people yeah. were all like, loved it and it was like oh my god I found my crowd I found the people who and they all you know couldn't get enough of it and it was just it was incredible and so from selling out of your ice cream van window literally what led you then to realizing that your destiny was actually a different calling and that journey between that and launching Curb so I did the van for about six years one of the hardest things I've ever done physically I would say just like you said all that operation all that moving stuff around, driving, setting up. Yeah, and it's all on you. And people come and have a laugh and work for you and everything because it's quite fun to work in an ice cream van. And it's And you're like, no, but I have to do this seven days. Yeah, and you're driving home at like midnight, unloading the van and putting all the ice cream out and like cleaning out the freezer and everything. And, you know, it's... Anyway, uh, yeah, I'd I'd been doing it for a few years and my brain started getting bored. It It was very physical and I was very addicted to the interaction with the customers like it was a joy dealing with the customers because everyone was so pleased to see you everyone wanted to chat it was almost like a confessional box the hatch of the van a food stall plays such an important role in a city even just for people who are lonely right it gives you somewhere to go and something to do and someone to talk to in a kind of appropriate way and you get to connect with somebody else I'd never thought of it like that yeah it's really important and People, you know, people who haven't got anything to do, they can go there and, and, and feel like they're part of something. You know, that's like a, one example of how much connectivity a food store gives a city. But that's a really important one and that I used to experience a lot. You know, it was really addictive, but intellectually I started getting really bored and it just became really functional. And I was, you know, I wanted something else. And I discovered this thing called urbanism which sounds crazy, right, that I didn't know what it was. But I didn't. I knew I loved cities, and I knew I was really interested in how they worked. And I read this book by Carolyn Steele called Hungry City, which has been really, really influential on me in terms of, like, how food has shaped our cities, literally by the animals that have walked in, you know, in London, from North London bringing in the dairy, from South London bringing in the poultry. And, you know, the streets are called poultry. The streets are called Bread Lane, you know, Smithfield Market everything like that they've literally like mapped out the way that the city is and I was like oh my god this is incredible and something was like turning away in my head at the same time as being surrounded by all these amazing vendors 
And I was really galvanised by the community, the natural community of traders that just I experienced everywhere I went, from festivals to markets to, you know, wherever. And I could see that there was something happening over in America with street vendors and food trucks and food trucks, especially in L.A., like really like activating the city in a way that the, the downtown had been so gutted from, you know, white flight all across the country. But like now was the time when people wanted to go back into the downtown areas and reconnect. And food was this amazing, vital reconnection for people. Yeah. And then in New York, the street vendor project where, you know, loads of the street vendors don't speak English. And it was this true like immigrant story of like lowest barrier to entry job that you can get is start cooking some hot dogs or whatever by mm -hmm. Times Square mm -hmm. and so I'm thinking oh there's something here there's something here there's something bubbling and I can feel it and and I was like okay I'm graduating to a new framework which is bringing people together around the idea of how important street food is to a city and how a city worth its salt should make space for street food because street food brings street life and it brings independence and it brings spontaneity and amongst all this these cranes and steel and glass and kind of like order and rationality you need a bit of chaos you need something that's not completely choreographed and telling you where to go and how to think and what to like and you know it's just a bit of rough and how important that is to our sense of humanity and so at, at the time, I don't know if I was exactly thinking about it like that, but that's what it was all yeah, feeling like, you know. Yeah, you can see yeah. that now, yes. I found a course in urban studies and master's at UCL, which I got on. And then at the same time, I had this idea at the same exact time as a friend of mine to let's form a collective. Let's get, create strength in numbers. Let's create more opportunities for ourselves. Let's make ourselves more visible. It, was, it, was, it all happened around about 2009, 2010. The crash has happened. Suddenly there's all these open spaces to start doing things with. There's a kind of informalization of British dining where we're being more experimental, less formal. Uh, there's a lot of meanwhile spaces in which to kind of start a supper club or start a, you know, a little food event in a, in a car park or something. And Twitter's come along as well to really kind of like bring these new communities of food lovers together. And by bringing together all this wonderful talent everyone's going to get better and it's going to become more visible and it's going to grow and my favorite word agglomerate and you know create more the more you have the more you have which is the principle of a market in the first place right and so I, I came up with this idea with my friend and we started something which was pre-curb called Eat Street um, which was a street food collective and our strap line was driving British street food forward and so that was a hobby that I did on the side but I, I now realized was like my segue into a new business and then I switched over and started focusing on Eat Street becoming an actual business. Gosh, it's funny listening to you. I realise how sort of similar our stories are, but my background was putting on uh, markets called Your Local Fair, except my ice cream van was a vegetable wreath. Yes. Um, and I used to make these wreaths. It makes me cringe every time. I, I don't know why I even bring it up so often. But realised that there was no markets to sell them. So I decided, well... I better start one myself. I better create a fair so that I can sell my wares. Um, but then putting on these markets, these fairs in places like Chiswick and Fulham's and Barnes, I realized that there was this magical um, feeling of when you bring small businesses and independents and dreamers together. And it's this sense of camaraderie and 
reflecting on your story, I became a bit obsessed with that as well. The weather became a complete, obviously, hindrance and the internet <laughs> came along. Yeah. So I turned your local fair into the online ma- marketplace, not on the high seat. But it was a platform where... Um, my sister and myself would scour the UK, loving nothing more than to go to independent um, streets or small boutiques or fairs and find these creative small businesses and, and sort of feel like you've just literally discovered a diamond. It's just so exhilarating. I have a very exciting announcement to make. The Congregation of Inspiration is back for its second year and tickets are now live. After its huge success in 2018, the Congregation of Inspiration, in partnership with NatWest, has been badged the UK's most creative business conference. I'm so honoured. Providing advice and inspiration for those running a business or for those dreaming of starting one. We're working hard to create an utterly inspirational day, jam-packed with incredible speakers and entertainment, life-changing advice from myself and esteemed guests, but also a chance to shop, eat and drink. And believe me, it's set again to be an Instagrammable extravaganza. But most importantly, it's going to be a chance for you to connect with your community, meet new friends, find your tribe. And I just cannot wait to take your questions, mingle with you all and have a tipple or two at the end of the day. So no matter whether you're an entrepreneur already on the path or a dreamer hoping to quit the nine to five to do what you love, the Congregation of Inspiration is one of the most important days to be part of. If you'd like to come to the Congregation of Inspiration 2019, tickets are now available at holly.co. I look forward to seeing you there. Each week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner, the monkey puzzle tree. Over to you. We all know that many artists struggle to make a living from their work and with so much creativity never leaving the studio, this is a real waste of talent. My name is Charlotte Raffo and I'm the founder of the Monkey Puzzle Tree. We collaborate with artists to create beautiful and innovative luxury fabrics, wallpapers and cushions. We pay a generous royalty back to our artists and use any British manufacturers. Following my redundancy in 2016, I was persuaded by an artist friend who was struggling to scale her business to use my skills in textile and product development alongside my personal passion for interiors and colour to turn artwork into stunning interior creations. At the Monkey Puzzle Tree, every design starts from an original piece of art. Techniques from the ancient to the modern are chosen to maintain the soul of the original piece, creating designs which are authentic and sometimes not for the faint-hearted. A couple are really quite naughty – So if you would love to give your home or business a touch of unique beauty while supporting artists and British manufacturing, please get in touch on social media at The Monkey Puzzle Tree or take a look at our website, themonkeypuzzletree.com. Thank you. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. 
We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. Isn't it amazing that you knew food was going to be your love? But then you looked at yourself and you loved urbanism. And so it's that reflection, isn't it, when we listen to your story, that you took two loves and you moulded them into something completely unique for yourself. So many people know they want to run their own small business, but they just don't know what. Mm. Why I talk about the passion list, you know, putting everything down there. It could be, um, it can be anything, you know, from food to senses to people to places to uh, industry. Because sometimes you need to write down the most craziest of shit on your notepad and somehow what comes out of it, you know, your love of um, the way that a city works is not necessarily a business idea. You're not going to be putting this into a business plan. But it's the sense, isn't it, that you can mould these two ideas and you created Curb. You founded it in 2012, is that right? Yeah. Yes. And your first market was King's Cross. Yeah. Tell me about King's Cross at that time and that must have been an adventure. Yeah, it was. It was mad. So it was actually 2011. So Eat Street was still in existence at this point, which I can talk about later maybe. But Argent, the developers at King's Cross, came to me and said, hey, we are creating the biggest property development site in Europe. And King's Cross, up until now, has had a reputation for drugs and prostitution and railway stations. And we really want to transform that and make it more food-driven and experience-driven and if you set up a market on this new street called King's Boulevard, which hadn't even been built at the time, you're going to draw, it'll help draw people up the boulevard and into the estate to experience, you know, Central St. Martins and all the other things that they had planned. And the word was activation. You're going to activate the site. And I was like, yeah, we're going to activate the site damn straight. It's going to be amazing. We're going to bring, and it was like, oh my God, we're going to really bring all this kind of like life and flavor and stories from around the world via the food into this brand new street. And it was really interesting. We were surrounded by cranes. You know, it was this one little street that had been built and these freshly planted like saplings up the boulevard and loads of hoardings and us kind of selling some stuff to mainly people from The Guardian And it was wonderful. It was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this is happening. This is fantastic. And it just kind of grew. And it was when we got that market that I realized that Eat Street, which up until then had been a hobby, could turn into a business. And I could hang up my ice cream scoops finally and put Jimmy out to pasture. That I was then looking at it a lot more seriously and going, oh, um, this this has got to change, this has got to become a different kind of business. Eat Street and the people that I'm doing it with, are we don't work as a group. Um, and that led to a very, very difficult period of time of breaking up from them and then going out on my own to start Curb with much more of an urbanist focus and much more of a business focus, albeit not that business focused in the scheme of things, but still much more like, right, this is, we're going to have markets and we're going to, you know, have membership and we're going to do some events and we're going to do some corporate catering and everything like that. And it was just really small, but 
coming from more a real formed. yeah much yeah. more formed and having control of the whole brand myself and how I wanted to talk about it and what I wanted it to look like and how I wanted it to be yeah it was a really interesting time because now suddenly London's getting wind of street food and we rode a wave and I was always very aware that we were riding a wave and that we couldn't rely on that wave and the intention for me was always I don't want this wave to be you know the thing that takes us up and then crashes us down on the shore I want curb and everything that we stand for which is everything I've you know said about making the city taste better basically through street food to become part of the fabric of the city because a city needs this it's just amazing and it's just I'm finding this conversation highly inspirational I have to say that just halfway through and now you have 90 plus traders this is right over five sites including King's Cross, Paddington, The Gherkin, St. Cat's, West India Quay, serving over 10,000 dishes a week in London. Could you describe a typical curb market for those who haven't visited? What types of food, what do you experience when you come to curb? You experience a really well curated selection of traders and whether it's six traders or 10 traders or 20 traders, it's traders that have gone through the process of even becoming members of Curb. So we only take on 5% of people that apply to join us. And then those 5% we put through an incubator program, three months of intensive trading and learning and feedback and really trying to get people from a great raw idea to being what we call Curb ready and able to then go on after the three months and take on other markets and our other opportunities through the corporate catering and everything like that. So it's, it's traders who are really trading like they mean it, who really know what they're trying to do, who really, you know, give a damn about their cooking, have got a vision. You know, for me, it's always like back to that feeling in your belly, yeah. like why are you the doing it? The inner core of you. Yeah, yes. and it could be any reason. It could be like, oh, I'm obsessed with apples, therefore I'm making apple pie. Or it could be an homage to somebody, you know, somebody's uncle who made some incredible meatballs. Or it could be they, want, they don't want to work for the man anymore and they want to do their own thing and they want to see their kids and have their kids around them more. Or, you know, there's so many reasons people yeah, do it. Absolutely. But the common denominator is people want to do their own thing and they want more meaning out of their everyday and they want to be in charge of their own destiny so you've got these people that we have vetted for you know having that level of intention and bringing that level of imagination and talent and everything to the table and brought it together with a real sort of spirit of enjoyment of the city and people doing what they really want to be doing so it's intangible but I hope that people experience a sense of It's just a different atmosphere, but it's a different quality of food as well. I think there's an awful lot of markets in London and there's some great food on the streets. But, you know, because of the way that London laws have, uh, it's called the Westminster Act, which means that you inherit a market store from your parents or whatever, rather than you have to get it on merit, means that quality hasn't always been at the forefront. And there's a real sort of... I didn't realise that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, it's it's created a real sort of, like, flatness and lack of... I can imagine. Lack of market force in the markets. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how much terminology comes from markets. But, like, for there to be no market forces in a market is not going to help anybody, really. And it's certainly not going to be good for the consumer. So we create market forces in the market. We create a sense of you've got to be the best. And you're around, you're trading next to people who are really 
you know, doing really good stuff and you want to learn and you want to get on and you want to improve and everything like that. So um, I hope that that's something that people can pick up on. And the number of people who walk around the markets, and you always hear this, and you probably got this as well when you were working on them, going, oh, I've always wanted to have a market store. I've yeah. always wanted to bake some brownies <laughs> and, you know. It's quite a romantic idea. Really romantic. Until huh? you yeah. actually have to deal yeah. with Jimmy and, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the breaking down and the of clutch. the... Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the broken but clutch. like me, I I think you're energized by the lives that you're changing. Yeah. I read recently you said you're not fueled by the commercials of the business. Your highest aim for Curb is to become part of this fabric of London. I'd love that KPI. Do you feel that there is that place within Curb to have those softer KPIs as well as of course you have we you know you know people have to run businesses. So make no doubt anytime I talk about this it's not because anyone who has another philosophy does not run their business excellently but the point is here is that you do recognize the the difference that you're making and this is propelling you yeah it's a really interesting dynamic between you know you've started not as a business but as a community essentially and you you come with all the kind of ethos surrounding that community and and of yourself as of myself as having been a trader in the first place and then you kind of like advancing to this other level where you're suddenly the one calling the shots and you're not a trader anymore and you're working with traders and you're organizing traders but you're not actually in amongst it anymore and so you're trying to maintain this ethos whilst also trying to maintain the business it's an ongoing challenge I'd say and it's it makes for a very dynamic business because I always say it's really political. You largely don't own any of the land that you operate on. That's why Seven Dials is going to be so exciting because we've got a lease and we've got a roof and we can do you know, mm-hmm. what we want mm-hmm. within it, which is really mm-hmm. exciting. But also you're dealing with the energy of all these different businesses and some of them have got startup energy and some of them have got like I've been doing this for three years I don't know where I'm going energy some of this have got I really need to expand now energy and you're you're kind of like trying some of it's got the 15 years 20 years I'm yeah. so tired type yeah energy. I'm over it <laughs> and some people you know you're you're navigating yeah. a lot of that and you're dealing with people's dreams you know and their hopes and wishes for a better kind of situation um and so it's it's really um, interesting trying to maintain the culture whilst maintaining the viability of the business um, especially in a world where with the whole retail space shifting and food being seen increasingly as almost like a savior to plug mm-hmm. into places and to kind of activate it you know back to Arjun. Absolutely I, I recently spoke to Roger Wade from Box Park for this podcast and I was astounded to hear how his business um, you know is basically what he feels pulling communities together um, his retail shipping containers it it actually is having a positive effect on this wider society you know we're talking about knife crime and the increase of knife crime and we're talking about how actually if we had community and the role that he feels his business plays on actual community you know outside of having a nice lunch or something nice to do but the point is is making a difference in society do you feel like you're doing that with Curb? I hope so. I think that the opportunities that we've managed to create are huge. And not just 
us creating the opportunities, but us creating the space for the opportunities to happen, you know, and the, and the number of collaboration between traders and the number of sharing of resources. I'd always love to see an infographic for all the different suppliers that supply the traders that we work with, because you've got bread companies that have been operating for years and years and years who've exploded during this whole street food kind of craze, because you've got the Bam Me guy going, I need you to bake this bam mi baguette in the exact recipe that I need it. And then you've got someone saying, I need a bagel done like that. And I need a brioche bun done like that. And I need, and suddenly they're expanding all of their output. And you've got this whole network of suppliers feeding the vendors and the vendors kind of working amongst each other, you know, collaborating with products, you know, like Square Root Soda, making all their sodas and doing a special one for good and proper tea or a special one for bleaker burger or whatever and and you've just got so much um cross-pollination between mm. everyone which is really exciting and to be able to have kind of helped to birth a lot of that or like bring create space for a lot of that is create the really space. really wonderful and you've also i was re- reading some amazing statistics on your instagram on your traders as you were just saying that you have 72 percent are from a non-chef background 40 percent are born outside of the uk 50 percent are founded or co-founded by women and 22 percent are parents they're amazing statistics. You must be really, really proud. You, you must have so many stories of these traders. Do you yeah. have one or two that can summarise this sort of, this change that you're making? You 72% are from non-chef backgrounds. They've gone into this passion of food and had to do what you did with Jimmy. But it's an amazing stat. I always think of, I mean, this is a bit old school, but I always think of um, Mark the Ribman who was a butcher from Hornsey, and he was a butcher from the age of 13, you know, real East Ender, diehard West Ham fan. And he um, lost his leg in an accident, and therefore he wasn't going to be able to be insured to be a butcher anymore because he couldn't handle the knives because he was considered unsteady now. And so he started, instead of butchering the meat, cooking the meat and uh, smoking the ribs and through smoking the ribs he would sell the ribs on Brick Lane every weekend and then he started making these hot sauces which became a massive hit and they were all called you know like blasphemous names like holy fuck and holy mother of god and (laughs) Judas is scary hot and all this kind of stuff and he created this whole like hot sauce movement and and you know he's this one-legged hammers fan like really giving it the big one out there on the streets like shouting around on Twitter like really causing a ruckus and create this real kind of like movement of meat loving you know like manicured men who were kind of like in the office all the time getting to realize their true like primal desires via these rib rolls and kind of getting all the hot sauce down their ties and everything and feeling feeling really like (laughs) men (laughs) and just like what what that created and just his you know his circumstance leading him to be doing street food which he wouldn't have done otherwise and just like there's so many wonderful stories about people just like turning their luck around and finding a space for whatever quirk or kind of desire it is they have on the streets of London and you know they're endless and it's it's just wonderful and it's it is just all about the connection you know Mm. 
For anyone out there, though, listening to this conversation, I was just thinking while you were talking about your one-legged butcher who then propelled himself into this amazing personality and success. But I can imagine that food and this dream of food, as we just mentioned, it's quite romantic starting up on their own, right? And But tell me now, if you had a couple of pieces of advice for for anyone listening who might want to do that, might want to go for it, what have you seen? Because you've had this, like myself, a bit of a bird's eye view on all of this. Mm. What would you say are a couple of pieces of advice for those who are thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I, I might just want to do this? First of all, I'd say go and find, track down a trader and ask them if you can work behind their stall to see if you even like it. And, you know, most people love it because it is just so much fun. It's like theatre, isn't it? You're sort of at the stage yeah. and the stall's your stage yeah. and you kind of talk to the customers of your audience and everything like that and you're making this this food and it's, it's just fun. It's immediate. It's like this very satisfying sense of immediate transactional, like, joy. But it could be not for you. You know, it, it's a long day, isn't it, standing up? Yeah. It's, it's physical. Yeah. It's do it for a week. <laughs> do it do it for a whole week. Have to empty the bins at the end of the day and like get rid of the, the uh, oil and everything like that yeah. and lugging the gas canisters around. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Like do that first. And then if you still love it, just think about, okay, what do you want to do that is so wonderful and exciting to you right now that it's burning a hole in your stomach? Because you don't need a lot of money to start these businesses. You could start it with four grand, five grand, really. I mean, we've got businesses that started with a little gas burner in a pot, you know? Like, you can, you can start with anything if you've got enough um, vision for what you're actually trying to do. I think it's really just tapping into what is your vision. Don't just do it because you think it looks like fun or because you're bored of your job, like Mm -hmm. run towards it, don't run away from something. And I know we're all, I was running away from boats. It's not like that, but I was also looking for something to pull me away from them at the same time. Yes, yes. And, you know, just really tap into what moves you. What's the thing that's going to sustain you when the shit's hitting the fan day after day after day and you're not making money, but you're satisfied on another level and, and really like tap into your grit, your inner grit and your inner level of perseverance because you know those seem to me to be the thing that really defines somebody who manages to succeed and someone that doesn't and you also run a brilliant name ink curb beta yes i think is that what you just mentioned this three month period of time yes so you didn't so you have a process why did you create a process so it it was kind of always a bit kind of a bit of this and a bit of that for a long time like we always in in essence did incubate traders by just bringing them together and putting them out there on the street and and growing in experience and advising and everything like that ourselves but we were dealing with people of all different levels and some people didn't need it and some people were just flying you know I mentioned Bleeker Burger Zam from Bleeker Burger well she did need it actually in the beginning because she'd only just learned how to drive stick and she kind of bought this big 50 grand van and she's driving around going I've got to make some burgers and stuff so she didn't really know what she was doing but she had a really strong vision and it's really like helping to work out what the person's vision is and it's very easy to just kind of like we were talking about get into it and then you know mess around and then go oh no it's not really for me so it's really like from the get-go working out why are you doing this where do you want to go with it and really kind of like sitting down with people and and almost like having an interview before going okay we think we would like to work with you based on how look how great your food seems how great you seem how determined you seem and everything like that and it was just a way of formalizing the process so that 
there was a definite pathway. Like we've got a whole ecosystem which starts with our workshops, which we call hatching. And then we've got the incubation, which is the three months. And then we've got the accelerating, which is, okay, you've incubated, now you're accelerating upwards. You're doing more markets, you're doing more corporate catering, you're, you're getting more exposure, you're creating more opportunities. And then ultimately for you to take flight and go off and open your own restaurant come to Seven Dials and open something there, develop your source range or whatever, if that's what you want to do or write a book or, you know, whatever. Or, but it was really to kind of like help to really make it clear what the, what the kind of pathway can be. You know, we had somebody come in for a tasting at the office yesterday, Rasta Walla. Her dad had a, uh, was part of a family who had one of the biggest restaurants in Calcutta in the 60s. She's now cooking all these family recipes. And she's, you know, she, you could say that you could argue that she doesn't really need it in many ways because she's already so fully formed. But yet she wants to learn what it's like to trade amongst the best and to trade in some really busy markets, you know, Monday to Friday and to get the sort of exposure that comes with Curb because a lot of people look at Curb and they go, well, they've done all this kind of due diligence. So whoever they've picked has obviously gone really good. past yeah. the test. So, you know, they're, they're good for it kind of thing. And so there's all different levels, but it's about kind of getting everyone and, and then seeing, okay, who's going to take... Well, after three months, some people will kind of accelerate quicker than others, but it's like creating a sort of level playing field from the beginning, really. It's, it's a brilliant idea because, as you said, so many people... You know, if you think about it, it just was reminding me, if not on the high street, you know, you're, you're creating your sort of own bubble, in a sense. You're looking after those who are within it because you're taking them through. Because it can be, you know, what, what is at the end of starting? You've got a little gas burner. It could be a book. You could have a restaurant. And you're sort of plotting that path for them. And it's amazing, as you said, when you bring people's knowledge together. Yeah. Um, the power of this. Yeah, it multiplies. And, and so now running Curb, whilst you grow I've noticed you travel a lot gaining inspiration for your business I loved looking at your interesting places on your Instagram such as New Orleans um, and you have an amazing team how do you manage to work and scale the business whilst working remotely and what advice would you give because you know in this day and age we have a sort of we can be more nomadic so many people that run their own business literally will sit there from 6am to like 8pm at night because you know as long as I'm here I'm working so so hard and you're like oh my gosh but you're your own boss you don't have to do that tell me about your experience and how you've managed this so um that all sounds fantastic but there's actually a really incredible guy who's part of this whole picture which is Simon um our CEO and so he is somebody that I met Four years ago, when I was at a stage of the business, when I was going, oh, this thing is moving and it's moving in a direction that I need help with. Having these big kind of like conversations with all these property owners and landlords and it's like taking your sort of funky idea and putting it through the lens of London real estate is a very different kind of conversation. Absolutely. And I was like, I need help with this and I need somebody. I was like, I need a really friendly bulldog. That was my wish list. And I found this incredible guy, <laughs> Simon Mitchell, who is just that. And he, he came on board three years ago, three and a half years ago. And he has really helped to, you know, I talked earlier about the, the sort of challenge between culture and commerce and really take the business in a more commercial direction whilst really paying like a lot of homage to 
the culture and keeping the culture alive and really like growing it on all these levels. He's grown the team. You know, there was like eight of us and now there's 30. So I work remotely, but I am not on the ground running the thing all the time. I, there's no, I can't imagine being able to be doing what I'm doing and being on the ground running, being in charge of a team of 30. So um, I'm very fortunate that I got to kind of get out there in the world and whilst also being part of the growth of Curb. And so that's so interesting, isn't it? Because so finding those people while you grow your business that you can trust and trust being the word in, in intrinsically knowing that they've got the values of your business. Yeah what you set it out to be and as you said it's two very very different things you know um, dealing with the landlords as you said and the real estate and everything like that is very different to what keeps your markets fresh what is the next level how are we going to help people so you you live remotely now do you so you don't live in the UK you live in New New Orleans is that right I'm between the two between the two tell me about the US because what's come across on this podcast from a few guests and Johnny Bowden was talking talking about it this sort of attitude to failure out there and how there isn't it's positive um whereas us Brits find it um quite difficult to get over ourselves and to fall and tell people we've fallen sometimes I feel very much when we find that someone is succeeding we slightly like to find the cracks and maybe mention those before we just tell them what a bloody good job they've done um I've got (laughs) I've got a lot to say about Oh my gosh, America. And you studied that. What am I even asking? <laughs> if we've only got a few more minutes on this podcast, but yeah. what would you say about that? I think that, um, you know, America's whole MO is about uh, individual success and is about, you know, the opposite of collaboration and is about winning and succeeding. And, and it relies on the individualistic approach to life in order for, to kind okay. of maintain the capital, you know, structure that creates that whole country in the first place and all of the inequity that exists there. And so what you're dealing with, and I'm not saying Britain is so like full of collaboration, but we're not like me, 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 me first, me first, me first. And I'm, there's a lot of good that comes from that in America because you get brilliance but what I think we're seeing is a lack of um, collagen between Mm -hmm. the people and a a lack of connectivity you know I'm really interested in I'm reading this incredible book at the moment by the way that everyone should read if they're interested in ecosystems and how you know how nature works how incredibly intelligent nature is she talks about it adrian marie brown the writer of this book emergent strategy i'll give you the name of it um about you know all of these uh systems in nature about you know ants and fractals and mycelium which is the fungal network on the ground that feeds all the information to the trees and how you know without that then we wouldn't have trees and without trees then where would we be and just how important all this kind of like connection is between one another and I think America's really struggling to find its connection Mm. between itself for many reasons one of which is that it's living a lie you know it's operating on land that it stole and never admitted that it stole you know made rich on the backs of people that it also stole and it's very ego driven and that can be wonderful if you're in the right what I'm stream. almost referring to there this yeah. whole this this you know championing the greats yeah. and the you can do it and yeah. you've done it etc yeah. etc you you yeah. you yeah 
and how fascinating yeah, and they, they they could do well to all kind of get down with some mushrooms I think and remember how connected they were <laughs> to one another so tell me I mean I could just literally do a whole podcast on this entire subject I find yeah, it fascinating it tell read me the about book, the future the I'm definitely going to read this book because we all need to understand what mother nature and the universe has been trying to tell us for a while and I'm as I get older the more I'm realizing that you are opening up your new space in seven dials in September yes tell me about how excited you are about this so excited honestly you know the work's all happening at the moment it's a 23,000 square foot ex-banana warehouse in seven dials which is right next to Covent Garden so Covent Garden was obviously the the fruit and veg market of London so it needed to have all the supplies held nearby and this held the bananas and the cucumbers and And you were telling me it's got a, a lane called Cucumber Alley. Cucumber Alley. Which is where the... (laughs) I know, we didn't even name it that. It's a gift. Um, And so that's going to have the produce. We're going to have 26 traders in total, a mix of produce, street food, coffee, donuts... I, I don't actually know what I'm allowed to say at the moment because we haven't announced it all. But yeah, we're going to have some really great... <laughs> <laughs> spill the beans. Amazing. No, really great traders who have got to the stage of their businesses where they're ready to scale up, um, you know, expand their businesses. We've got Club Mexicana, you know, Meriel, who's made a real splash in London with her vegan business um, and really transformed the way that people eat vegan food in the city. And it's just going to be a really amazing opportunity to finally have our own roof and our own lease and to be able to like run wild with all of these interesting ideas bring together all of these interesting traders and have a bar have a stage have a bookshop which is going to be a london-centric food bookshop and just a really great this is my wish for it that's going to be a really great cultural space where with food at the center but for people to come and to be and to enjoy and to hang out and just kind of like feel part feel the pulse of london you know, one of our slogans is taste like London. And I really want it to like taste like London, feel like London and be a really great example of how far the city's come with food mm. um, in the last 10, 15 years and, and for everyone to be able to come and experience it. Gosh, mouthwatering. On this podcast, I use the analogy that running your business is like being on a most unbelievable roller coaster, actually. And you talked about this during this interview. Tell me what you would say was one of your greatest lows on this roller coaster. It was definitely the moment when I realised that Eat Street couldn't be Eat Street anymore. And the people I was doing it with, I was going to have to part company from. And the period of time in which... I wrestled with the idea of how do I hold on to the name? And everyone around you saying, you can't lose the name, you can't lose the name, it's such a good name, you can't lose the name. And you feel, like for the first time in my life, truly um, shackled mm-hmm. and unable to like know how I could get unshackled. In the back of my mind, always thinking, I can just lose the name and then I'm free. And then finally having the confidence to do that and then you know, relaunching and everything. But the period of time... With a pretty good name. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That took a while as well. Um, My uncle came up with that name, Adrian. Um, But no, just just, um, the period of time of, of... you've got this thing that you really care about but the other two people really care about it too and how do you negotiate your way through this 
it's really brutal yeah. and it feels again you look back and you're like but what even was it we weren't even really making any money but it was the idea and the and all hope. your passions and yeah. hope and dreams yeah. and it's very difficult yeah yeah it was really really difficult and and on the on the other side of that the the high I mean, there's been so many highs with Curb. One of my favourite events we did was Reggae Roast. We, we collaborated with Reggae Roast, the sound system at, on Granary Square in King's Cross, and we did a reggae event. Reggae's my favourite kind of music. You know, you're there on Granary Square, everyone's cooking the jerk and drinking the rum, and the music is playing, and everyone's just dancing out there under the sky. And when you can create an experience which is like totally public anyone can come to it no one has to pay to get into it and people just spontaneously enjoying themselves in a city like London which is increasingly hard to just like spontaneously do stuff in the open air it feels really rich um, it feels really incredible but I probably like in terms of a longer term thing I'd say um, when I took my chocolate van on a three-month tour of Britain and I drove all around it looking for strangers to give me supper and a bed for the night and in return I'd make them a chocolate pudding and um, it was just this amazing adventure that is just like it's like my little baby that I look back on and think oh my god I just drove around Britain flogging chocolate and sleeping in strangers houses and I got to see Britain through the lens of chocolate and it was absolutely incredible. I've never eaten so many roast dinners in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and also something I've also asked my guests now is that um, who would you recommend that I could interview? Someone that's really inspired you? I would say Nikki, um, Nicholas Smith, who I met through trading um, she has a business called Healthy Yummies and she is probably the hardest working person that I know. She was one of the founders of Fabric Nightclub and she then moved into food and she does the most incredible set catering at the film studio. She's gone all over the place doing it, really coming with something much more elevated than your typical craft catering. She cooks like nobody else. She makes friends with everybody. She works her socks off and she's never stops innovating. So she's got this incredibly successful catering business. She obviously had an incredibly successful club. And now she's really, as things change for her, she's really looking for what's the next thing for her personally. And she's doing this whole um, Mexican sweat lodge, shamanic stuff based on her trying to find... Um, a better solution for her, her, she won't mind me saying this, but her early menopause. And she's, you know, she's gone into this whole plant-based way of eating and everything like that. And she's kind of really kind of taken it and run with it. And I guess what inspires me so much about her is she just goes and finds something, takes it, runs with it and turns it into something wonderful that brings loads of people together. With all that hard work. Yeah, and she's a grafter. And I think you would love to talk to her. Oh, she sounds phenomenal. Yeah, she is. Phenomenal. She is. Petra, this has just been an amazing time to spend with you today. I have loved hearing your story. It's mouth-watering. It's about independence. It's about soul. It's about community. Um, and I certainly know now when I come to your Curb Creations, really what has gone into it. And I can only imagine what's next for you because you are articulating these dreams so well here today through what you believe that you're going to be giving us all. And I 
cannot wait to see what your future is. It's been a true, true honour to listen to you today. As a lady who brings people together for the common good, has created a commercial sort of pocket and bubble, as I know I've done myself, to meet another woman who's on that journey is just fantastic. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Holly. That's so lovely. It's been really wonderful talking to you. A real pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's that time of the podcast where I hand over to my guests. I've asked you to write a letter to your younger self. And I just thank you for sharing a little bit of your soul with us today. Thank you, Petra. 1986. Dear Petra, here you are in the kitchen at Brentili, the oven time around your neck as you await the chocolate cake that you've made, slowly, unevenly baking away in the rickety old agar. You've made this cake many times and have started branching out into brownies and chocolate chip cookies, often making the cookie dough, then never following through with the baking of it, so keen are you on snarfling it straight from the bowl. In a few years, you'll be taken by Miri on a magical mystery tour to Cabri World in Birmingham for your 15th birthday treat. Such is your love of chocolate. There you will try your first taste of Aztec-style hot chocolate, and your tiny little mind will be blown. You'll also wet your pants at going on the spaghetti junction for the first time, not being able to make up your mind which is more exciting, getting up close and personal with all that chocolate at Bourneville or heading to the exotic metropolis of Birmingham, such a far-flung-seeming place to a girl from a village of 100 people in Suffolk. What would you think, then, if you were to learn that your love of chocolate and your interest in new places, however unprepossessing, would one day lead you to create a chocmobile from an old ice cream van bought from a man called Eddie all the way up in Inverness, that you would fill it with chocolate treats of every description, ice creams, milkshakes, truffles, sundaes, hot chocolate shots, frozen chocolate dipped bananas, then buckle up and hit the roads of Britain, selling your wares and tracking down adventures all across the land, free to roam wheresoever you like. And that in driving this wagon, you would meet so many wonderful people, chocolate lovers of all ages, as well as other traders slinging food from their vans and stalls, all sharing with you this love of doing your own thing, making it up as you go along, determined for work not to feel like work, and for the pace to be set by you and you alone. The timer would go off and you wouldn't hear it, you'd be so overcome with joy. And then, through doing the chocmobile thing, you would be moved to collaborate with all these other slingers, looking to make food on the streets a more special thing in this country, seeking to elevate the offer, strengthen the opportunities, and create more awareness of just how great it is when a city makes space for ground-up food businesses to have a shot at thriving on these 21st century streets. That you'd create friendships, partners, markets, street parties, the possibility of a thousand new dishes being cooked by a growing movement of people who all share in the spirit of doing your own thing and getting that flavour out there and into the bellies of an ever-curious and food-loving audience. My God, you'd burn that chocolate cake in shock. How could you even imagine it? And how, too, could you even fathom what it would take you to move through all of this? You'd run screaming into the fields at the prospect of the grind and the perseverance and the patience required. You can barely get through the 25 minutes of baking time plus 30 minutes of cooling time before going in on those cakes you bake. And boy, will you be impatient as you grow up, burning with a desire to do something. And you won't know what it is for ages. You'll anguish over finding your calling, yearning for a clue, a message. And even when you do, you'll discover that you've never truly arrived, but are always arriving. That at no point will you have your shit all figured out. 
that life moves like water and one day hopefully you will too. And the best thing you can do as you grow is to stop pining for the horizon and know all the magic that sits right in front of you. You are surrounded. You'll know when it's time to act. Trust yourself. You have so many adventures yet to come. And for now, just keep baking. Keep making sweet things. Keep loving the taste of things and the way that tasting things makes other people feel. And go ahead and eat the cake batter if you want. It won't do you any harm. Love to you always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I promised I would like you cry but isn't it just beautiful this moment that you gave yourself to write to your younger self because you know there she was and she was so keen and hungry for everything and you are here now as a grown woman and you've you've built this thing, this thing that she would be so proud of you about. And um, I really feel that that was just a very, very beautiful letter. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I can't believe how emotional it is to do something like that. Everyone should try that. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. And eating cookie dough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come